seated. All right, kids, you are able to head out. Um, Meredith's right over here for you. Uh, you can go and have fun with Meredith this morning. Parents will promise to bring them back. Well, actually, you can go over there and get them, please, uh, when we're done with service. Um, this morning, the passage of Scripture that we're reading is, again, from Judges, and it is a it's a story that continues the ongoing saga of the dilemma of God's people, and it's our dilemma. It's not just a dilemma from way back when, but it's a dilemma that we are constantly in, and it's one where we wrestle with our allegiances, to put it uh, one way. That God is saying, I'm the God of all of the universe, and I demand allegiance from all. And those who give allegiance to me will be blessed, but those who continue to give allegiance to other gods and to other things, uh, they'll be my enemies, uh, and I'm going to confront them regularly and constantly. And so what we're seeing in the book of Judges is God's people, his church, wrestling with their own hearts and being tempted constantly uh, with how it is to live a distinctively Christian life within a distinctively non-Christian culture. 
to live for God solely and alone when there are temptations and other opportunities and other religions and other philosophies that are rampant around them. And what we find regularly is that they mess up. Now, that has a lot of application points for us in our own culture. That as Christians in a church, we are called to live distinctively Christian lives, living uh, solely for God, that he's our authority, he's our source, he is our guide, and we're to do it in the midst of culture that doesn't believe those same things and quite honestly offers all kinds of other opportunities for us to serve other gods, to serve other idols. That's the world in which we live. It's pluralistic in that way. And so what we've seen constantly of God's people here is that when they mess up, it says that they did what was right in their own eyes. The people followed after the Baals. It says that they prostituted themselves after the Baals. And that God was rich in mercy and would send a deliverer, a judge, and he would deliver the people from the oppression of those other gods because what they found out was when they went running after these other things, the other things didn't, never gave what they promised. They promised life, and instead what they gave was starvation. They promised freedom, what they gave was bondage. Uh, They promised all this other stuff, but at the end of the day, it brought about destruction instead of freedom. And God was incredibly generous, and he would continue to send uh, these judges. We've seen Deborah, and we've seen Gideon, uh, and we've seen these judges who came and freed God's people. And for a season after that, it says that there was rest in the land. Well, what we're going to notice this week, and if you have your Bibles, uh, turn over, go back one chapter and look at chapter 8, verse 28. This is the story where uh, we saw uh, that uh, the people had been delivered by Gideon from the Midianites, and they were freed. And it says there in verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the day of Gideon. Now that may seem like nothing, except for this. From Make a little note, mark in your Bibles right there, or even underline that. That is the last mention of rest in the book of Judges. The land is never again at rest. That's the last one. And what it is, is a poignant picture for us of the effects of continual rebellion, the effects of continual uh, habitual sins of running after and giving our allegiances away, that God is rich in mercy, but there is a time and there is a place where God just allows us to go. And what we experience is the fruit of our experiments. We experience the fruit of our allegiances. And one of those fruits is this. There is no longer rest in your life. There's a progressive nature to the effects of sin in our lives. And it's a topic that no one really wants to talk about. But the fact of the matter is this. Sin affects us. And it has negative consequences on us. And part of God's judgment within our own lives is that he removes rest from us. So that the hope is that we will run back to him one day and go, God, I'm at the end of myself. I'm at the end of my rope. And another thing that we notice in this story 
is that Gideon, who was the leader of Israel, you see him mentioned as Gideon um, constantly in the first part of chapter 8. But then after Gideon begins and makes that ephod, he makes that thing that we talked about last week out of gold, and he took on a role as the priest, and it said that it became a snare to the people, and they, they prostituted themselves after it. Notice that from that point on, Gideon is referred to by his Baal name, Jerubal. Because it's basically saying there was such a decline with even in the life and the reputation of Gideon that he was no longer known even as Gideon. But the effects of sin in his life were so profound that he was known as Jerubal. That he had taken back on his, his pagan name in that way. And what I want us to talk about today is the continuing ongoing effect of sin in our life and how do we deal with it? How do we wrestle with it? And the story, I'm not going to jump over the story in chapter 9, but I'm also not going to read all 59 verses, uh, 57 verses to us. Because this is the story uh, of Gideon's son and his son Abimelech. And Abimelech was from one of Gideon's concubines or servant girls, or basically a sex slave, uh, is who she was to Gideon. And she was an Ishmaelite. She was a Canaanite. She was part of the people that were supposed to be eradicated and taken out. But instead, Gideon kept her around and then had relationships with her, and they had a son. And he named this son Abimelech, which means my father is king. And so Abimelech now is growing in his power, and his father Gideon has died. And so we'll pick up and read just a few verses in chapter 9 and then unpack some of these things. And it says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, uh, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Do you see what he's doing? He's going to his people, to his town, and he's saying, hey, I've got 69 brothers out there, half-brothers, and you don't want them to rule over you. Wouldn't it be better if one of your own, one of your own sons ruled? And he whispered in their ears, and his mother's relatives, verse 3, spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berith, and with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. And we'll end there. Do you see what's happened here? I mean, this is a movie set. He comes to his own people and he whispers in their ears and he says to his mother, make me the king. And they say, okay, we'll do it. And they give him some money and he goes out and he hires assassins or he hires worthless and reckless men. What a way to be described. Man, I hope none of you could ever be described that way. Worthless and reckless people He brought, and it's worthless and reckless people who follow a man like Abimelech. And he says that they went out, and basically what they did was they gathered up all of his half-brothers, and they brought him to Gideon's hometown of Oprah, and it says that they killed them. And interestingly, where did they kill him? On one stone. So they lined him up, and they put their heads on a stone and either smashed him or beheaded him. They 
And most likely what was happening was they were sacrificing them on a Baal altar. Because it was at Oprah, interestingly, Gideon had torn down the altar of Baal. And now, coming back in with his son, it was being reintroduced in a way that he brought. And you can just imagine the horrific scene that was there. That they were, wow, that's a fast something going up the road. (laughs) I thought that was through the sound system. It was like, (laughs) Patrick? Um, Gory and gruesome. And that's how he established his rule. Now, what we're going to look at today is that the effect of our lack of allegiance to God leads us to make allegiances with leaders like Abimelech. Maybe not physical leaders like that, but sin, Satan, in that way, is that kind of leader. Think about it. If you were a good citizen of the land of Israel, would you want to follow Abimelech? Heavens, no. Who would in their right mind want to follow a man like that? A man who was willing to kill his, out all of his brothers. He was just like any other king and any other monarch in all of history uh, in that way. He was devious and he was underhanded and undermined. And he came and he did all of these things. Now the story goes on, and I'm just going to fill the blanks in for you. The story goes on, and here's the, one of the interesting effects of sin. One of the interesting effects of sin is that those who lie get lied about. Those who deceive get deceived. Uh, Those who steal are stolen from. Those who murder in their minds and hearts and hate are hated. Sin has an effect of always kind of boomeranging and coming back on us and affecting us in that way. And so what you saw with Abimelech is he now was coming and he was doing this and he left one of his half-brothers free, Jotham. And Jotham went up on the mountain and he yelled down a curse upon Abimelech. And he said, Abimelech and all of the people of Shechem, here's what's going to happen to you. Because of what you have done, you are going to devour one another. Fire is going to come out of each of you towards the other, and you will devour one another in this way and be absolutely destroyed. And then Jotham was smart enough to go run and hide because he knew that he had a price on his head. And so there they were in Shechem. And an interesting thing happens. This guy comes back to Shechem, and his name was Gaul, or Gaal. And he came back, and he was evidently from a prominent family in Shechem. And he didn't like the fact that now uh, there was this, uh, basically a half-blood, who was leading in Shechem. And he came about, and he says, you don't want to follow Abimelech. And he began to whisper in the ears of people. Interesting, you've heard that before. And he began to rally people around him. And he says, you don't want to be with this guy. You don't want to be with Abimelech. You want to be with me. So why don't we come and kill Abimelech? Well, word got back to Abimelech. Abimelech was like, oh, so you're going to take me on. Okay, fine. And he laid siege to his own town in Shechem. And he destroyed all of them, murdered them all. Gaul and everybody. And some of them went and they hid in a high tower. Uh, and they were there. And it says that here they were. And if you've seen The Patriot, how many of you have seen the movie The Patriot? There's that scene, that's such a powerful scene where they lock the people into the church and they, and they put the locks on the outside and they burn it and the people are being burned inside. That's exactly what he did. They went into a tower and he locked the outside of the tower and they poured fuel on the tower and they burned the tower down, burned the people alive. He said, but I'm not satisfied just there. And he went on to another town. And in that town, he said, I'm going to do this as well. And the people ran into a tower there. And he went and he attacked the tower. But Abimelech, in all of his arrogance, got a little too close. Because one thing you know, that if you attack a tower, you don't get really near the tower. 
You stay back from the tower. You set the fire and you go and you step back. But he got too close and it says the woman took a millstone, an upper millstone, which would have been a little bit smaller millstone, and she threw it out of the top of the tower and smashed his head. But look, this guy was so arrogant and so self-deceived that as he's laying with his head smashed on the ground from a millstone from a woman, he looks up to his servant and he goes, run a sword through me because I don't want anybody to know that I was killed by a woman. He dies in his arrogance. He dies in his self-delusion. And so that is the story of Israel up to that point. And God, and see, at the end of that, it says, And when the men of Israel, verse 55, saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. Wow. I haven't figured out how to preach this one yet, so we're going to see how I can do in the next few minutes. Because how do you preach this story? How do you preach a story uh, of this kind of intrigue and make it palatable and reasonable and actually effective for a 21st century audience? Here's what I can find in there. Is the devastating effects of sin in our lives. And what I'm going to do is highlight a few things, a few principles about sin in our lives that don't come exactly necessarily directly from this story, but are built in and of this story and around in other places in Scripture. So I hope you stay with me for a few minutes on it. Because this is something that we need to know and understand and believe. Because here's the bottom line. If you go and play with a tiger, you're going to get bit by a tiger sometime. You go and swim around with sharks for a while, a shark's going to act like a shark at some point. There was an old fable that for uh, some of the Eskimo tribes who would be in the Arctic ring and would be there, that when wolves would come, that they didn't know what to do with the wolves because they would come and be predators. So what they learned was something about wolves was they loved the smell and taste of blood. And that they saw and they would take a large knife or something very sharp and they would dip it in blood and then they would freeze it and they'd dip it in blood again and freeze it. So basically it became a huge bloody popsicle. And they would set this incredibly sharp razor kind of thing out and the wolves would come and they could smell the blood and what do you do with a lollipop or a popsicle well you lick it well after a while if you lick it down they were cutting and slashing their own tongues and so it was their own blood and it was feeding their own frenzy and then what they found was the wolves would devour themselves and leave the people alone sin is that way it has a way of bringing us in and deceiving us to where at the end of the day we're devouring ourselves and we don't even know it. We don't even see it. Back in chapter 8 when Gideon was saying that he made that epod, he made that, uh, that priestly vestment, it said that it became a snare to the people. And the word in the Hebrew there is actually a word that's used not for the whole snare, but it's used for if you put a snare out, what do you put right in the middle of the snare? You put the bait And basically what they're saying is it was that bait. It had become that shiny, pretty, good-looking thing that we go to and we throw ourselves at it, but what we don't realize is it's right in the middle of trying to gain what we think is going to bring us life. We're actually ensnared and, and killed in the middle of that. And so what I want you to think about for a moment this morning is what is it that you're pursuing other than Christ that is promising you life? 
What is it that you're pursuing other than a relationship with Jesus Christ that is promising to give you peace or promising to give you security or promising to give you life or promising to give you something else in your life? All of you have it. You may not have identified it, but all of you have it. For some of us, it's running after uh, the dream of recognition, that if I can only get this recognition, if I can only get to this place in my company, if I can only do this, then, it's the if-then. What is it that's filling in that blank for you? If I can have this, if I can do this, then I'll be at peace. Then I'll be content. And I want you to begin to analyze that in your life. What is it costing you to pursue that? For all of you have idols. All of us have those idols. For some of us, they seem like reasonable things. But you know what idols are? A simple definition of an idol. A simple definition of an idol is that it is a good thing that has been moved into an ultimate place for us. Is it good to want to have healthy relationships with other people? Is that a good thing? But when you have to have relationship with other people, it becomes ultimate. Is it good that God gave us physical relationship sex in the world? Is that a good thing? Now you're going, gosh, you're not supposed to talk about that at church. (laughs) Well, is that a good thing? Yes. But if you have to have it or it's put in a a, a different spot, it becomes an ultimate thing and it becomes an obsession or becomes an addiction in that. To have a drink. Is it wrong to have a drink of alcohol? No. But if you have to have it to be your peace, to be your satisfaction. Money, is it wrong to have money? Yes, no, (laughs) okay. No, but if you have to have it. See, a good thing moved into an ultimate place. I will only be content and happy when I have this much money in my portfolio. I made the mistake a few years ago of doing one of those silly little uh, calculators that says if you have a child and he's this uh, old, uh, this is how much money you're going to have to have in savings right now to get them through college. And if you want to have a million dollars in your bank account and you're this old, this is how much you need to have now and how much you should put away. I looked and I thought, well, I guess we can get by with 100000 uh, somewhere down the road because, my gosh, I looked like, holy cow. Now, I know plenty of people who would look at that calculator and go, okay, i got to get there. And if my peace is tied to there, then I will do whatever it is now in order to get there. I will lie, cheat, steal, deceive. I will do whatever it takes in order to get there. I will even self-deceive myself to think that I have wealth in order, and I will pretend that other people think that I have wealth and have all of this so that I feel good that I can get there. You see, it becomes in this way, and the first principle that I want you to see uh, is this, sin is slavery. One of the effects of sin, one of the principles of sin, is that it acts as a bondage to us. And it ensnares us in that way, and we can't get out uh, of its grasp. That then when you're caught in that cycle, you're caught in it, it becomes an, an addiction. And the problem with sin as an addiction is this. Is that the cycle, and those of you who know the cycle of addiction is that the cycle of addiction begins when you believe that you need to be medicated with something. You have to have something in order to gain your peace. And so you gain that thing. But then there's this tyranny of the needing more. 
then all of a sudden it's not enough to just have what you had yesterday or today. You've got to have more for that. And then what happens within an addictive cycle is you feel badly that you had and you took a drink or you looked at pornography or you went out and bought something or that you ate too much or whatever the addiction is that you're feeding in that way. And so then you feel guilty. And guess what? Guess what the addiction and the nature of sin uh, and the slavery says to you? Gosh, you idiot. You shouldn't have gone and done that. You shouldn't have had one more drink. Now you're feeling terrible, and all of a sudden you're not at rest anymore. So guess what your mind tells you to do? Go back and take another drink. The very thing that got you to the place of distress is now calling in your ear and just saying, have a little bit more of me, and you'll be better. Sin is a slavery like that. Sin, it it, it ensnares us, and it creates in us a mindset like that. You don't have to turn there, but just re- write, write down these uh, verses. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. This is the people of Israel had come out of Egypt, and they were walking with uh, Moses through the wilderness. And it says, now the rabble who were among them had a strong craving. Had a strong craving. Something that won from a good desire to an ultimate desire. Paul calls it, uh, and the Greek word is epithumia. Paul says it's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. It's an over-desire that we have in our lives. And the people of Israel also wept and again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Do you see a dangerous bondage within that? They had such a mentality of slavery in that, and they were such a slave now to their own appetites and cravings in this way. What were they willing to go back to? I mean, what logical person would say, I am so hungry and I'm sick of this manna. You know what manna means? It means, what is this? They didn't know what it was they were eating. And I mean, that's the best translation in the Hebrews. What is this stuff? And they called it manna. And so they're eating manna, and they're just sick of manna. They're sick of PB&Js. They're sick of whatever it was God was giving them. And they had such a strong craving and a desire for meat that they were willing to be completely illogical. Oh, don't you remember the days when we had free fish and free meat? Well, yeah, but you were slaves in Egypt. You were being beaten and murdered, and you had absolutely no life at all. Yeah, you had fish, but you're missing the point. And you go, what kind of crazy people are these? That's what sin does in our lives. It makes us miss. We are so addicted to whatever that needs. We're in bondage to it that it creates that mentality that we're willing to not see any. Have you ever been with a person or you yourself have had a person come to you and you're trying to talk reasonably with them and they just make no sense? You know, if you drive around that curve at 100 miles an hour, you will go off the edge and die. Oh, I know, but it would be so exciting to go around the curve. But you do realize that on the other end of that is absolute death, burning fire, blowing up, all of that stuff. Oh, I know, but I just love it. I tell the story, and it's one of the most powerful stories. Robert Downey Jr., those of you who are older know him from some other roles, but he's Iron Man. Well, Iron Man is a recovering recovering addict. And he was in a courtroom not too many years ago, and he was standing in front of his judge, and he was being sent back to jail because he had broken his probation and broken his his plans or his... um, uh, punishments and penalties 
And the judge said, don't you realize that this is going to kill you? And he said, your honor, I do. But it's like this. I'm holding a shotgun and I have the barrel in my mouth and I've got my finger on the trigger and I see it and I know it, but my problem is I like the taste of metal. How crazy is that? That's what sin's like. He's saying sin is that kind of slavery, that bondage, that you know that it's wrong, but it has gotten so a hold of you. And some of you are in that cycle right now. And we're going to get to the hope part in just a second. Another picture of sin that we see uh, in and through this uh, is that sin is a predator. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, when the Lord comes uh, and he speaks and he says to Cain, Cain, why are you so angry? Why are you so downcast? And he warns him in verse 7. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you'll be, you, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's a picture of sin, that sin is a predator and it has one desire, and I've said it many times to you, so I'm not going to belabor it today. But sin's desire for you is not to make your life better, folks. Anything that is in opposition to what God has laid out and says this is how life should be lived and this is the best thing for you is a predator and its desire is to destroy you. We live in a country uh, that basically has said anything goes. We have laws, but those laws are, are, are weak in many, many ways. And we have and we live in a culture now, and, and I've been amazed as a parent of teenagers I've been amazed at the culture in which uh, this, uh, the island and in our area is raising teenagers where so many, many parents are basically saying this, they're going to do it anyway. They might as well do it under my watch. I'll provide the alcohol. I'll provide the places. I'll provide it. Yeah, I know Johnny and Susie are sleeping around. I know that they're drinking. I know that they're doing drugs. But at least I know they're doing it here around me. I want to go to those parents. Do you understand that you're throwing your kids into a pit of vipers and we're going to get bit. They're going to die. Sin wants to destroy them. It doesn't want to play with them and hug them and coddle them. What God said to, to Cain was, it crouches. It hides itself from you. It makes itself look small and cuddly and neat. But what it's going to do at the end of the day is it's going to destroy you. It is going to scar you and mark you. I imagine if we took a younger generation and some of the older generation, and the older generation was to speak and say, as I reflect back on my life, and I look, and all the things that I thought were freedom really weren't, and the scars that I bear, and the relational wounds that I have caused in my own marriage, in my own life, that were caused by what I thought it was basically sin's predatory effects in my life trying to kill me. And the younger generation, you know what you guys are going to say, younger generation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'll go try to experience. But sin says it wants to destroy you in that way. A couple of others, and we'll end with this. We'll just end here. And then the good stuff. <laughs> sin is decay. Sin is decay. And that's where the book of Judges comes in. Lisa and I's first house was in Memphis, and it was a great little house, and it had a little workshop in the backyard, and I love having a workshop. Every man at some point in life needs to have a workshop. I'm no good with all the tools, but it's just nice having them, having a place back there where you can have them, and you kind of go, that's my workshop. And we had been at the house for a little while, 
And I walked in and I opened the door and I reached over and it had the exposed studs. It didn't have, you know, all that there. And I reached over and I put my hand up on the stud and all of a sudden the studs around the door just crumbled like balsa wood in my hands. Now they looked like full studs. There were no holes in them. There were no outward signs. But as I began to dig and tear apart, I realized the termites had infested the front half of my workshop. And they, over the course of time, had caused a decay to enter into that wood. And it only was exposed when some pressure was put on the outside of it. Sin is exactly like that. It bores in and it decays you from the inside. One step away from God. One little movement away. One little decision away here. One little thing. And over the course of time, the compilation of all of those things, then when the wind truly blows, when pressure or force is pushed against you, you realize that you have absolutely nothing on the inside from which to draw from. Sin destroys you from the inside. It's a decay in that way. And so we have to, and that's what we look at with the people of Israel. They had finally stepped away and stepped away and stepped away so much that there was no longer any rest within the land. So now, amen. Have a good week. (laughs) Come back next week for the answers, right? Man, I've been in churches where they leave you like that. You go, thanks, preacher. Whoa. Yeah, I get it. I'm terrible and sin's horrible and all of this stuff. Romans 7. Write down Romans 7. And here is Paul, who wrote these words. And this is our hope. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't understand why I want to go back to Egypt and eat fish when I'm here in freedom and been given this incredibly cool food by God. I don't know what it is, but it sustains me. And I want to go back to Egypt. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be the law that when I do want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law. So he goes, Basically this, he's going, I'm wrestling with sin. I'm seeing the effects of sin in my life. The things I want to do, I don't find myself doing. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do? Where is my hope? And some of you are going, thank you. Where is my hope in this? Your hope in this, it says, but praise be to God. And he goes on in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. And he goes and he teaches the rest and the beauty of the gospel, which was this. Jesus Christ came into this world to free you from the power of sin and reigning sin in your life. You don't have to continue to do the things that you're doing. There is a power within you that can slay the predator, that can stop the decay. He says, oh, the beauty of the gospel is that it gives you back the years that the locust has eaten away. It replenishes the decay that is there. It's a renewing work of the gospel within your life and in your mind. 
A friend of mine had lost, literally lost most of his mind to heroin addiction back in the early 1970s. And he heard Stairway to Heaven on the radio and he went, huh, I want to learn about heaven. So he went to a church and he said, tell me about heaven. And they told him about heaven and about how to get to heaven through Jesus Christ. And he said, but my brain is fried. I can't even remember what day it is. And he said, Lord, if I read your word, would you renew all the years that I've been that I've just been doing these crazy things. And the last time I saw Danny Lehman out in Hawaii was early in 1992. Danny had memorized over two-thirds of the New Testament. He'd written three books. He was an evangelist and a pastor. Decay gone. Beauty of renewal of the power of God in his life. Addiction gone in that way. For we see we have one who can do more than you believe that he can do on your behalf that he can do it for you, that he's the power to help you do these things. And what I'd love for you to see in this is when there is a desire that comes to do other things, I hope that it's displaced by a desire for Christ. It is that surpassing power that comes from a new passion within you. It blows out everything else. When you see the life of Christ bearing out in your life, all of a sudden what you see is this beauty that comes from it. And a freedom that comes from it. You guys have incredible stories that I wish we could share. Of how God has done incredible things in your lives. And how he continues to do incredible things in your life. And I want us to be a church that shares that. But it basically comes and it says, I can't do this on my own. It has to come through the power of the gospel in your life. It has to be in Christ. Now here's your test today. This is your homework, okay? I don't normally give homework. I'm not a big fan of homework. Um, but here's your homework. If you think that you have the power within yourself not to sin, to live the good and righteous life, and you don't need God's help, you don't need Christ's help, you don't need anybody's help, here's your assignment for today. For the rest of today, follow the golden rule. Simple, right? What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Driving home with all of our friends from other parts of the country who don't know what roundabouts are. When you go to Publix and you go to Walmart and you go to the beach and people are parked in the parking places they're not supposed to be parked in. And they come and you've got your little area set out for you and all of a sudden they come and they sit right next to you. And you're thinking... And then they have that idiot dog that comes and wants to sort of check you out. And you go, I don't like dogs. Well, at that moment, apply the golden rule perfectly. And what, well, really what I want you to do, or here's another one. Lisa and I call it the tongue exercise. Don't say one negative thing for the next 24 hours. Speak only positively. Only compliments. No harsh words. No whining. Only praise and adoration for those who are around you. You've already not applied the golden rule, haven't you? (laughs) You're like, I don't like this guy. And all this stuff. See how quickly and easily we fail these things? Just, I mean, honestly, try it today. And what will you will do is find your desperate need of a Savior. Your desperate need of a power in your life that's greater than your own flesh. And what we present to you today and what the scripture presents to you every time you open it is the power of God on your behalf.
to lead you into rest and to peace and to overcome these things. Sin wants its way with you. And my job in your life is to simply ask you to confront it. Own it and deal with it. And deal with God in those things. And I swear, I shouldn't swear, I promise. I promise. Jesus Christ has overcome even the greatest enemy that you're facing. And he will do it on your behalf. If you will let him. If you'll let him. Okay? So good luck the rest of the day. (laughs) Tongue exercise, golden rule. Got it? Got it? Now, you can't apply this to your spouse, husbands and wives. Don't go, ooh, you messed up. (laughs) Mirror only. Mirror only on this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even silly reminders of how desperately messed up we are. We can't even go an afternoon without speaking negatively about somebody else or having a negative thought or putting ourselves first. How could we ever hope of heaven itself and its beauty and perfection? But praise be that you sent your son into this world in all of his glory and all of his perfection. And so that when I stand next to him and you ask, how come I get to go into heaven? I can say because I have the righteousness of your son in me. And it is accounted to me and is it accredited to me and it's my notebook that I hold and it is my perfect test score that gets me in. And so God, I thank you so much for that. Would we take seriously the effects of a life in this world that are under the pressure and power of decay, of falling away, of addiction? And would we apply in there not our own self-will, our rugged determinism, But God, we would apply the beauty of the gospel and its power. We praise you and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.